Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. People who know me well know that I keep a folder of writing that has changed my life in some way. Among these personal gospels is Eisenhower's farewell address, Vacillation by Yeats, and a 1995 essay called American Weimar by novelist Steve Erickson. Reading it for the first time 21 years ago was a bolt of lucid fear. Fear for this country and fear for the values at its foundation. The piece is an indictment not of America, but of modern Americans, a people in denial of our past, still exhausted and divided by Vietnam and too angry at each other to harness any goodwill. America wearies of democracy, it begins. And the result is a hysteria of which we're barely conscious, a hysteria in which democracy appears as a spectacle of impotence and corruption. Since writing these words, Erickson has become one of America's foremost novelists. He's got ten books, countless awards, and a Guggenheim Fellowship to prove it. But in 1995, all I knew was that someone had finally put his finger on what felt sick about this country. The nation gets meaner and more petty, he writes, until rage is the only national passion left. 21 years later, the national sickness Steve Erickson diagnosed has only progressed. The rage has evolved beyond what I even anticipated then. Uh, I've become more aware over the years that have passed of this profound division in the country that I realize now has always been there. Um, You know, if people ask, how did we get to where we are now, my answer would be, we've actually always been here. We've always been these twin Americas, the one that made a promise and the one that broke the promise the moment it, it was made. And we've never... We've never really reconciled the two, and I, I think it's going to be difficult to reconcile the two. I'm, I'm not sure that the America that elected the first African-American president can be reconciled with an America that voted for the first president in modern mem- memory to be openly endorsed by the Ku Klux Klan. You referenced something here. I want to read this um, as one historical phenomenon after another from the assassination of John F. Kennedy to the Vietnam War, to Watergate, to O.J. Simpson hurtling down the L.A. freeways is offered as a moment when the country lost its innocence. We have not grown up enough to accept that America has never been innocent at all, that such an idealistic and romantic country was created out of such profound transgressions is a more complicated paradox than we can entertain. Now, I want you to articulate for our, and they can read other things written by you, you know, what happened to us in the wake of Vietnam? You know, I think we we had to reconcile ourselves with what could not be reconciled with, which was 50,000 Americans, not to mention the countless... Hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese. Of Vietnamese who died for what exactly? I mean, we don't have an answer to that. Nobody believed anymore at that point. That the it was in the national interest. That, right. The collapse of Southeast Asia uh, was somehow— Didn't mean anything to us. Meant, meant anything to the national interest, right. as you say. 
in the same way that 100 years later, we still don't know what World War I was really about. You, you were old enough to go to Vietnam. Did you go? No, I um, was in Nixon's lottery, uh, which matched you up with your birthday, and you got a number. And if your number was below 200, you were probably going to go. I got number 345. Your life was hanging in the balance, depending on this random chance of this lottery. And I think that when that can't be reconciled, a, a, a national people have to create some psychic rationalization mm-hmm. for it. it it's the, because the meaninglessness is too overwhelming to live with. Someone like Cruz, who say that Vietnam wasn't the problem, the countercultural reaction to it and the lawlessness of what happened to it, nothing infuriates me more than that. Right. You can take the excesses, the drugs, the silliness, the ephemera of the representations of the countercultural movement in our society and strip those away and say, this was when people cared. And, and people who belittle and blame the countercultural protests uh, of that period. I don't know why it is that nothing infuriates me more than that when I read that. Well, because they're blaming the wrong thing. But I will make this distinction. The first time somebody burned an American flag, I think we lost the next 50 years. There were bad tactics in the service of good causes that the right was then able to assess upon. But to go back even further, you know, talking about what we've choked down and the loss of American innocence, 150 years after the fact, there are still millions of white people who will not admit the Civil War was about slavery. Mm -hmm. That is the American version of Holocaust denial. It keeps us from becoming what we want to become. It's a lack of acknowledgement that keeps us from fulfilling the American idea. Uh, I think Americans, whether they're trying to rationalize the meaninglessness of Vietnam or 250 years of slavery, it may be in the American DNA to always think that everything is year zero. Mm. It might be in the American DNA to have cut ourselves loose from history and therefore not ever have to answer for it or to it. Trump is not something that happened to America. America happened to America. And Trump is the result of that. Trumpism was born out of claims in the face of all evidence that the first African-American president was not a real American and not a real president, to which the Republican Party at the time said almost nothing. And the Republican Party deserved what it got. Unfortunately, we got it too. What is your political process, and what's your political rearing with your parents when you were young? You all grew up in in Southern California your whole life. That's correct. And um, I was raised a conservative Republican by my my parents. Really? Who were, you know— Who were artists. uh, Who were artists and who had started out when they were very young as FDR Democrats. But like a lot of people at that point were starting to drift rightward. Why? Well, I think that— Cold War? Cold War, um, and then later on in the 60s, a a reaction to the counterculture. Right. 
um, which I, I, you know, I think has, has defined our politics over half a century more than we know. I think a lot of the reason, for instance, that working class people are persuaded to not vote their economic interest is because of these uh, values that came out of this conflict between yeah. the the culture or the mainstream and the Reagan wanted to take on students in this state. Exactly, and and so you know, I I was raised a. Um, a Republican conservative, and to make a long story short, a number of things happened. First of all, it, by the time I came of age or was 17 or 18, I realized that on the great domestic crucible of the day, which was civil rights and racial justice, conservatives were on the wrong side morally and historically. Um, that in turn undercut a, a basic tenet of conservatism, which says that the more that power devolves away from the federal government down to the state, down to the locality, the greater individual freedom grows. The problem with that is that is contradicted by history. On any number of occasions, it's taken the federal government intervening against the states to secure the individual freedoms of African Americans, women, gay people, and and then as my um, ideas about the role of government in life changed, as I accepted that sometimes it takes the federal government to preserve the social contract, uh, conservatism changed. It became uh, – when I was identifying as a conservative as a teenager, it was closer to what we now think of as libertarianism. Right. And in the late 70s and early 80s, it starts to become on the one hand more corporate and on the other hand, more theocratic. And it, it felt like, you know, that, that for all the lip service that conservatives give individual freedom, what they really cared about was order. Right. And the only individual freedoms that I ever heard conservatives get exercised about were the freedom to make a profit and the freedom to own a gun. <laughs> and so generally, my politics shifted while I think arguably the center of gravity shifted. <laughs> because if you go back and look at, for instance, Barry Goldwater's views now, mm-hmm. I mean, Goldwater was an environmentalist. He was pro-gay rights. He was pro-choice. He, uh, he supported the Voting Rights Act. Goldwater rightly identified as the most extreme nominee of a party in the 20th century is you now— believe that? Is now, well, I mean, his vote against the 64 Civil Rights Act was a bad vote. Sure. Nonetheless, I think that his views, which were so extreme in 1964, are now significantly to the left of the current Republican mm-hmm. Party. So I shifted one way. The center of— our country's political gravity shifted another way. And that's why I wound up where I wound up. To me, at the same time, philosophically, it's been this friction between capitalism and democracy. Right. Like how much we're on a boat and which which containers do we throw over the side right, of the boat right. to keep the boat from from capsizing. Yeah, I, and I think the last 10 to 20 years have just have just confirmed that or, or validated it. Unfettered capitalism nearly drove this country over a cliff 10 years ago. And, you know, I think that there's a lot to the argument, the current argument that we're we're pretty close to an oligarchy at this point. Mm -hmm. We're we're there. It's very demoralizing and it's very depressing. 
50 years ago, you could use the word capitalism and the expression free enterprise in the same sentence. Now, it's laughable to, to think that capitalism is free enterprise. And the conservatives who, um, you know, who are distressed by centralized state power never seem to feel the same distress over centralized corporate power. Mm-hmm. What was writing in your life? I mean, I'm not just saying that. I mean, you are such an amazing writer. Oh, thank you. And you've been reviewed with some of the most, I mean, just glowing. I mean, that's a cliche. And what was the writing process for you as a child? And on? When, when did you realize this is what I'm going to do? Uh, I realized it pretty early. I was, um, when I was young, let's say five years old, I stuttered very badly. And to the point that teachers thought I couldn't read. And this is actually fairly typical of writers. You know, you have a verbal facility, but it's being obstructed. Shuttered. Shuttered in your speech, so you retreat inside your head. Uh, The verbal facility manifests itself in written words. You're living inside your imagination. It doesn't make you more sociable, (laughs) but um, by the time I got to college, I liked college a lot. Where'd you go? I went to UCLA, right. and I was a— I and, was, why so, and why so, for someone as open-minded as you, right. is why so California-centric? Was there any thoughts of you, I want to go to Berlin, I want to go to London, I want to go— Yes, but, but it was far enough, and, it was, and, and I remember a sense of liberation. That what I, time were you in, in the Valley again? Uh, Granada Hills. Granada. So, so for those who don't know Los Angeles, he's, he's right. The gap between Granada Hills and Westwood, Westwood really is like Paris compared it, to Granada it, it Hills. Was, it, absolutely. It was another <laughs> world, another you world. know. And, and I thought Westwood was the big city, you know. <laughs> and, um, it was. And, uh, and, and after that, I, um, I, I, I actually did go to Europe. Um, and I, I, I lived there off and on for a while. So... UCLA was that step mm-hmm. away. Steve Erickson is one of our leading thinkers on the legacy of the 60s and 70s. But few people had more of an impact on how Americans saw that era in real time than Dan Rather. When President Nixon was elected in 1968, I frankly thought at the time, here's a new breath of air. But I quickly learned that the, the Nixon people, including President Nixon, they had such a deep and abiding hatred for the press. It revealed to me for the first time, we have a problem here. An important reminder that America has come through this before. Rather's new book, What Unites Us, answers Erickson's question, can the many Americas be reconciled with a resounding yes? Hear my whole conversation with Dan Rather at heresthething.org. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Steve Erickson's most recent book is Shadowbond, a funny, heartbreaking road trip through our divided country. The writing is intensely visual, which reflects Erickson's own alternate life path. I majored in film. Why? Uh, uh, Well, I started out a political science major, um, and I was taking a lot of literature courses. And I wanted to take some film courses, but the the bureaucracy at the time, and may still be the case, was such that um, 
I could still take the political courses and the literature courses if I was a film major, but I couldn't take the film courses if I was a poli-sci major. So it was a, a completely tactical mm. choice. Right. You know, um, it was a, a way since, – since I knew I wanted to be a writer and since what I majored in really didn't matter much to, to me, it was a matter – It's a very wise insight. Uh, it, 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 <laughs> it, doesn't, a, it doesn't matter what you major in. Right, because I, I was going to go off and do what I was going to do. Right. And so I made uh, this strategic choice that allowed me to do all the things. What was film school like? I mean, UCLA is a top film school. What was that like for you? It it was great. But you didn't pursue that? I didn't pursue being a filmmaker. Why? um, Could you have said, do you think you were capable, the guy, the the, the stuttering boy from Granada Hills, who goes inward? Right. With that, was he was he able to express what he wanted to in film as well I, as as writing? I think you nailed it with the question. I mean, I I, I realized at some point that I, I probably should make a choice. That both of these things would be really hard. It would be impossible to try to do both. And the thing that that you're right on about is that film, as you would know better than I, is a more collaborative, highly so effort. You nailed it. As being a writer, you lock yourself in a room and you have as little um, interaction with humanity as you can get away with. And you know what? That suited me. That, that's right. who I was. Um, what's the first time you sold a piece and you became a professional writer? I sold a piece actually to the Los Angeles Times calendar. The gist of it was that the line between reality and fiction was blurring. This was the early 70s. Yeah, How did you sell the, a piece back then? How does that work? Well, I, it, you know, it works the, the way it still works, which is that I knew somebody who knew somebody right. who could get the piece into the hands of the editor of what was then the L.A. Times calendar. Right. And, and, and give it a real read because that's what it takes. I teach writing, and as I tell my students, without trying to depress them unduly, you know, editors look for a reason to say no. They're not looking for a reason to say yes. So you have to be sure you don't give them any reasons to say no. How do you do that? When I submit a novel, for instance— it's it's pristine. It's so clean you can eat off the thing, and um, it 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 is laid out to look the way the book is going to look, uh, so they can visualize how how it's going to look, you know. And when I get papers from students where there are typos and that, that kind of thing, I, I just explain to them, you can't do that. Right. I mean, every— How can you expect people to care if you every, don't care? Exactly. And every little flaw becomes cumulative. It, it builds up and it, it, it reinforces this, uh, this impulse to, to turn the thing down. Now, so you wrote this piece. Now, did you have books you'd written— you know, in your pocket? You know, I was writing novels all the time. I was writing since I had, I was in high school. Uh, I mean, I, I wrote five novels before I, I published one. Your first book that's published is what? It, the first book is published in 1985. That's 12 years right. after I had published the first piece. And if you had told me at that time it was going to be, I'm glad there was nobody to tell me it was going to be another 12 years. Because they, they felt like 12 years in the wilderness. And, and by the time I sold the book, I remember the feeling was more relief than anything else because it just seemed like it was 
it was never going to happen. And, and is it the same thing, somebody who knows somebody? The thing that was instrumental was finding the right agent. During that 12 years, how do you support yourself? You no, were doing the teaching thing then, were you? No, I wasn't. I was— What does the writer do those I, 12 years? I was, I was working for the PR department of the auto club. I was, so you had a job job. I had a job job. I was also writing freelance pieces for um, the L.A. Times, the L.A. Weekly, which just had kind of just launched in the late 70s. Right. The Los Angeles Reader was another. All, yeah. So um, I was cobbling together a living, but it was always clear in my mind that, uh, you know, success for me meant becoming a published novelist. Right. And when you got the book published in 85, because you got— a literary agent. Right. And are you still with that literary agent? Yes. You are. I am. And I had had several agents before her. None of them could sell my uh, work. Um, I had gone to New York uh, to find an agent. I had I've interviewed with four agents. They had all read this, this novel, what wound up being my first published novel. They all said, you know, it's, it's a really interesting book, but I don't think I can sell it. And then I finally found somebody who said, I don't know if I can sell it, but it's a really interesting book. And she wound up selling it to somebody who had turned it down. What's her name? Melanie Jackson. Who she, she, what company is she with? Her own? Her own, yeah. Why have you stayed with her all this time? What does she do for you? So here's a quick story right. that revolves around that first novel and how the first novel sold. Um, she had submitted it to somebody as Simon & Schuster who had turned it down. And a couple months passed by and it's gone to some other people. And then one afternoon she gets a phone call from this editor at Simon & Schuster who, who had turned the book down. And the editor was bemoaning the fact that another book that she had turned down had gone on to be published and had got, gotten attention and was doing well. And she was thinking, I shouldn't have turned that down. And my agent said, yeah, and you're going to feel the same way when somebody publishes Erickson. And the next day, the next day, Simon & Schuster bought the book. Yeah. That's what a good agent does. Right. You're pretty tough on Bill Clinton in some of your writing. Was it because you, on the simplest level— he let you down? Yeah, I wound up voting for him twice. Right. Uh, I still believe that um, uh, he might have done the country a favor if he had resigned during Monica. You do? It would have put Al Gore in, who probably would have won right. in 2000. You know, once the issue became less about, you know, his affair and became more about impeachment— I switched. I, I did not think what he had done was a constitutionally no. impeachable offense. No. No, and no. and it, it was clear to me that that the Constitution was being molested by Republicans. Ken Starr has more on Just, his conscience for what he did to this yeah. country. But, you know, Bill Clinton sure helped them out, as giving my, them a target. And as my friend said to me, He's, he said to me, I had this horrible incident. I'll mention this because I throw my own thing on the table. I had this horrible in incident where I left this blistering voicemail from my daughter that my then ex-wife put on the Internet. She released it to a tabloid organization that played it on the Internet. And as my therapist said back then, he said, well, you know, that was wrong and that made things worse and that was terrible. But none of this would have happened if you hadn't left the voicemail. 
So none Let's just start of, with it. None of this would have happened if he hadn't done what he did. In the time we have left, I want to talk to you about your books. How does that process, for again, for our six listeners who are writers out there, <laughs> um, you, must be, you must be a rabid reader. Uh, I, I used to be a rabid reader. I don't always have the time to read. And when I'm working on a novel, I don't read other fiction. I, I, I'll read history or I may read poetry even. But I don't, I don't want to go into somebody else's world. Right. Um, Who are writers that you admire? Pynchon, Marquez, Faulkner, Henry Miller, the Brontes. Um, those, those were writers who influenced me in some way. Do you, ever, do you have a reading list you give to your students in the writing class? I do. Send it to me. Okay. <laughs> I want that. If I get one thing out of this. I mean, they, 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 they tend to... Uh, they tend to form object lessons. So, you know, you want to, if I want to, for instance, show the students how landscape can be a character in, um, in a story, The Sheltering Sky by, by Paul Bowles, or how voice is, uh, can uh, drive a narrative, Miller's Tropic of Cancer. Um, but, and so that, that's the function of the the reading list tends to. Are you still teaching now? Yeah, I am. And you teach at? I teach at UC Riverside. At UC Riverside. And so that's, uh, uh, how far of a drive is that for you yeah, from uh, the mountains? It's, it's 75 miles. Oh, my God. Yeah, I know. And you teach how, the class meets how often? Once a week. Once a week. Yeah. For f- three, four hours? Right. And, and if I have two classes that quarter, um, I'll put them both on the same day, and I'll have one monster day. Yeah. So that, yeah. Just getting it out there. Getting it out there, yeah. And, you, and then the, the class is entitled what? Well, the, there are—I I have the luxury of creating my own classes. Sometimes I'm teaching uh, workshops, so we're critiquing the work of the students. This coming quarter, this would probably be interesting to you. I'm teaching um, a course uh, of fiction into film. That is, I give them a list of novels, and then we watch the adaptations. You're doing that when? Uh, th- this coming quarter, September, October, November. This this airs. Well, I'm sad. I'm not going to be out here. I can come visit your class. That's I can right. Sit in on your class. It, it, they and would you be teach thrilled. it again. I'll come sit on your yeah, class. Yeah, yeah. They would be thrilled if you were just sitting. <laughs> if there. I sit in the room and listen to you talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But so, so you do that, and you and how many years have you been at UC Riverside now? I've been at UC Riverside now. This is going into my fourth year. And why do you? What, what do you think? What is that impulse in you to teach? Um, well, it pays my bills sure. for right. starters. Right. And I learn things about writing when I'm teaching things about right. writing. I learn you things. You enjoy it. I, I do enjoy it, and I think I'm getting better at What's it. What's hard about it for you? What do you wish you were better at? You know, the, the hardest thing about it is, uh, is negotiating the fact that you really can't teach it. <laughs> that writing is not, a, is, that talent is not a teachable thing. Skill is a teachable thing, um, you know, the, but, but, but talent or vision or even voice are, are things that uh, the students have to bring there. And, and the other thing about workshops and writing programs in general, which I think are generally really valuable, but they do by their nature, tend to socialize what is really antisocial behavior. You know, you're sitting around with, with, with other people talking about your writing, 
and that's okay up to a point. There, there's also a point where you need to have the solitude to grapple with, with your you own You need to go to Morocco. Work. Right. That, that's right. Um, your most recent book is? Shadow Bond. Right. And what, to talk to me a little bit about how that came about. You know, I just, one night I remember um, the family was gone. I was alone. And I, this will sound more mystical than I mean, but I, I had this vision, if I can use such a grand word. You can. You're allowed to uh, use that of, word. Of, of the Twin Towers suddenly reappearing in the Dakota Badlands 20 years after their fall. And people start to gather, and um, uh, they become like this American Stonehenge, and people then start hearing music coming out of the towers. And and living in the Southern Tower is Jesse Presley, who was the real-life stillborn twin of Elvis, and he's going mad, hearing a voice in his head that sounds like him, but he knows isn't his, and imagining an America where he survived in his brother's place. (laughs) (laughs) That's how it works. Yes, that's how it comes to you. That's how how it works, yeah. I will write something, especially when I'm starting, and it starts slow, and uh, it's intermittent, and... I'll the feel, writing is intermittent. Uh, yes, and I, which which is not great. One of the things that I try to uh, talk to the kids about is the more of a routine you can make it, the the better. But um, if I can't make it a routine, I'll write it. I'll be excited about it, and then as time goes by, I start to worry it to death. But you know, one of those unteachable things, along with voice and and talent that we were talking about, is is instinct. And after you've been doing it a long time, you start to develop an an instinct for what's working or what's not working. Which isn't to say that after um, a year and a half, you're not so sure. You know, you you've been living with the material for that long. You've started to lose perspective. Um, six publishers turn it down, as was the case with this novel. And demoralized. And you go, are they right, you know? Um, Am I wrong? Am I not seeing it? All those doubts, I I don't think you ever stop grappling with those doubts. And are you working on another book? At the moment, I don't have an idea in my head. Writer Steve Erickson. American Weimar, which we link to at heresthething.org, stands as one of the sharpest essays ever written on the country's past and present. The current political crisis has only made its warning more urgent. But here's something to cheer you up. Erickson's Hollywood farce Zeroville is returning to its spiritual home. James Franco picked up the rights... He and Seth Rogen star that's coming next year at a theater near you. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from WNYC Studios.